Greetings, future fossils. Welcome to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. One might inspect that as a matter of course these investigations draw us into the acquaintance of the authors of science fiction. And in this episode, we get into the reasoning for this with Elliot Pepper, who is a science fiction novelist himself, as well as a business strategist, someone who has launched several of his own companies, as well as advise large corporations about how they can stay ahead of the game. But first, a quick word of gratitude for everyone out there who's helping me play the infinite game of an ever-improving conversation about an ever-improving life circumstance of our ever-richer cultural descendants. That's right, I'm talking about everyone who has subscribed to this show on Patreon or is supporting my music with a subscription on Bandcamp or has been buying my art at michaelgarfieldart.com. All of you folks are helping me piece together a living that allows me to continue to devote myself to this work full-time, and I deeply appreciate you. I am 29 subscribers away from my goal for 2017 of 100, and when I reach that goal, I will be releasing several exclusive Future Fossils episodes and other stuff. I also have, for all of you subscribing already, I have the science fiction short, An Oral History of the End of Reality, which explores artificial intelligence and forgery. Well, that'll be out here for you very shortly. I just have been so darn busy doing cool stuff like writing original music for the uh, Plurality of Privacy five-minute play series currently on at the Vortex Repository in Austin. That's what you're listening to here right now, actually, and and all of the music I just wrote for this production about the ever-shifting horizons of privacy in our age of growing digital surveillance. Yeah, all of this up already for the 71 of you supporting this on Patreon, including our latest new supporter, Ellen. Ellen's actually been a fairly active commentator, and she's reminded me that Patreon's a great way for all of you listening to connect to one another as well so that's really cool also a big thanks to everyone who's given this show a five-star review on itunes which is amazingly every single person who has reviewed the show so far that is so cool thank you it really helps get this into the ears of new friends and collaborators and isn't that what we are doing here weaving together the new dynamic structures of this planetary renaissance and with that i release you into an utterly delightful conversation with elliot pepper because you deserve this enjoy Michael, how's it going? It's going all right, Elliot. How are you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm doing well. We've got sort of, I'm based in Oakland, so we have a very, uh, it's like super cool, weirdly wintry summer day. <laughs> mm. But uh, yeah, no, things are going well. I'm, I'm working on a new book, and uh, that's taking up a lot of my time, but it's been fun. Tell me about your new book. Yeah, it, well, the, it actually was publicly announced last week for the first time, so that's so it's good timing. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a near future thriller about the geopolitics of climate change and how algorithms shape our lives. So there's sort of it's uh, almost like you know the the way it was pitched was Mr. Robot meets House of Cards with a group of techno utopian activists who hack the data feeds of world leaders to sort of manipulate governments and, and markets. So oh. it's been quite a bit of fun to work on. It's called it's called Bandwidth, and it comes out next May. Nice. Dude, I've been writing uh, also about the uh, – how would I put this? This issue of forged recordings – 
Mm. You know, the, the uh, Radio Lab just posted a piece on this, which spooks me because it means that I can't write science fiction faster than the news. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> Yeah. But like this issue of what they're calling conversational synthesis and facial reenactment. Right. Uh, yeah. Basically, you can like whether it's audio or video, you can very, very effectively mimic someone now to the point where even their family wouldn't know the difference. Yeah. So in light of all of that, the question becomes, <laughs> you know, my my interest in all of this and one of the reasons that I resonated with you and the work that you're doing not only as a, a writer of science fiction, but as somebody who consults with companies about the future that we're actually going to be living in, you know, mm-hmm. helping them to imagine this stuff, is that I feel like there aren't a lot of people working within the futurist field that I'm aware of that are making the kind of effort that science fiction does sort of naturally to invite people into the actual lived experience of these speculative scenarios, Mm. You know, and that it seems like, you know, this, this particular issue, when people imagine, oh, we're going to be, you know, using nanobots to cure heart disease and everyone's focusing on like living to 200 or whatever. Like they're looking right. at it from the like Ray Kurzweil orbital platform rather than like down on the earth where you're asking these questions like you were uh, your Alexander Weinstein interview on scout.ai yeah. about, you know, the human quality of it. Like how, how does it feel to live in a world where this thing is true? So it's like, how does it feel to live in a world where we, we don't know how to deal with recordings anymore? We don't know whether to admit them right. as evidence. I think that's where fiction really has its strength, right? I mean, it's, uh, I think that a lot of, a lot of sort of like analytical discussions about the future, whether that's an op-ed or a white paper or a podcast or what have you, they tend to be very idea focused, right? So they're like about the technology and its promise. And that's, useful to an extent, but I think that it really misses the most important part, which is context, right? Because we're, we're, whatever the future is, we're going to live it. And so understanding the human experience of that is really important um, on a personal level, but also on a policymaking level, also on a strategic, like business strategy level, also on all these different levels. And I think that that's where fiction can really stand out. And I think that's where Weinstein's book really stands out. Another good example is actually Lori, like a, a very concise example is uh, Lori Penny wrote a, a novella called Everything Belongs to the Future. And it's sort of along Kurtzwellian lines in terms of like, okay, so like, if you really think we're going to be able to extend, say, double or triple human life, like, how might that look? And in, in her little, you know, sort of snapshot of it, what's really interesting is it's it's pretty dark because when you have all, like, if you, you know, obviously only some people will be able to afford those treatments, whatever is required to keep you alive that long. Mm. And the minute you do that, like, now you've extended inequality by definition, right? Because if you live for a long time and now you're not even dying, so your kids can have the chance to, to screw up the wealth you've accumulated, um, you, you, you have inc- the, like a much, much more exaggerated economic inequality problem. That, But then there are also like really funny spinoffs of that, right? Like if you're going to live to 300, someone who today might be very laissez-faire about climate change regulation because they're an oil billionaire might completely flip if they have to live through the damn thing. <laughs> right. Right. So like you might see completely autocratic climate change enforcement, right? Like immediate and super sort of uh, dramatic changes to climate change policy. What, but having that be a bad thing. Right. Like for, for most people. <laughs> well, so, yeah, you know, some really interesting things there that I think it's really difficult to tease out if if you're only thinking through an intellectual lens. But uh, if you're thinking through the lens of uh, the more holistic human experience and like the emotional experience of it and and sort of I, I think that's where fiction can really sort of add depth and texture 
Definitely. Let's let's actually unpack that particular issue a little more. I don't really have a plan for this conversation, but I do think that you know, as these specific topics come up that merit further unfolding, let's let's turn into them. And one of them is this issue of the social impact of radical life extension. Because I, I, I started thinking about that very thing a couple of years ago uh, that you just brought up about how, in a weird way, a conservative gerontocracy might actually encourage individual and corporate responsibility because we look, like, we're, we're looking around and we're like, well, we don't want these, you know, we've we got an issue here where so many of the people in power you know, are so old they don't have email addresses or, you know, they're just, they've lost touch with how the world has changed and, you know, they're not really interested in keeping up because the horizon of their own demise is nigh. You know, so it's like, or, or, or they're, you know, uh, fundamentalists who believe that the end is near, you know, and we can't really agree on on any kind of like longevity policy. I mean, on any type of like long-term horizon plan that way. And so it's, it's this weird conflation, which in current thinking, like I, these two things are kind of separate from one another, that, that we really want the churn. We want new blood in politics. We want, you know, people to come up. But then on the other end of it, we've really lost touch with wisdom culture. And it's possible that you know, on a 300 year time horizon that we, that we're actually giving ourselves the time and the incentive to develop, to cultivate a wisdom economy sort of, or like, you know, to steer things toward regenerative systems and that kind of thing. I don't know. We are pitching back into the speculative and, and, and conceptual here, but it is a podcast. Yeah, so I, I think that uh, it's a weird one, right? So I, I think that whenever you call, whenever you're looking for a value judgment, so whenever you're trying to think about, like, for example, is radical life extension a good idea? Or, you know, because that's often what people are looking for when they think about the future. They're trying to think about, well, is this something we should support today, right? Um, and like, will this lead to a future we want to live in? Right. And I think that like the radical life extension, the, the social implications of that, it, it really depends on what lens you take. Right. So from whose point of view, is it going to be better or worse? If you're if you're I mean, like, I am very lucky to and privileged to be an American who, uh, you know, lives in the Bay Area, which happens to be the center of sort of like economic and technological innovation at the moment. And I would probably be pretty likely to be in the category of people who might have access to that kind of technology, right? Um, and so from from my perspective, if I, if I want to live longer and I can, why shouldn't I be able to? And if I want to live longer and I can, and I'm an author, right? So that means I have another hundred years of writing novels ahead of me. Maybe I'm going to get really good at writing those novels, right? And maybe I'll write better novels because of it. So when I'm 185, I'm going to be writing these pieces of, of literature that no one would have anticipated because no one has had as long to practice as I have, right? <laughs> On the other hand, like, even now, if you look in the, the world of publishing as a tiny little example of this... Uh, authors like Stephen King, who have been large brands for a long time, you know, they're like, why wouldn't they write until they die, right? I mean, unless they just decide they want another hobby. Um, and authors often write until they die. And because they do, they have a large fan base. And there's the turnover when new generations of authors come up. But if Stephen King was going to write until he was 200 years old, like, I think that would definitely make life very difficult for new <laughs> authors in the same genre. Because if he's still writing, why do they need to find someone new to read, right? Dark so, Tower 49, yeah. It's like, come on, yeah, guys. I mean, I don't think this is new. If you look at, so like a good analogy for this is, 
is how the how uh, communicate telecommunications technology um, both uh, you know the actually having the telegram and then having like honestly like the printed word like publishing technology um, and then later having mass media communication systems available and now the internet those have impacted writers and musicians in a very similar way because now if you have the internet and you can reach everyone with a blog post and and if you're a reader you can read any blog post in the world right why would you not only read the best stuff right like of course you're going to read the best stuff whereas it used to be if you were i mean if you were uh in renaissance europe you would only have access to the stuff in your geographic area. So you might love to read the local, or I don't even know, you might not even read. So you might just go to the local pub and like there would be some guy who shows up there to like tell you what's going on in the capital, right? Or tells a story for entertainment. Um, but as you get larger and larger scale through technology, now the, the quality of the talk goes way up, right? Because like, in order to be popular, you have to be the best in the world, not just the best in your town. The superstar um, effect, yeah. Yeah, it's the superstar effect, and I, I think that longevity will will exaggerate that in the creative industries, right? Because you, you, it'll just it, there's no reason why it wouldn't continue longer. So now you're going to see that um, play out, and I think that in other areas of life, like in politics and business, like you're going to see similar things. Like, would Warren Buffett just retire if he had another 100 years of, of happy, useful, productive life left in him? I doubt it, right? So if you're hoping to be a hedge fund manager or, you know, have your own private equity fund and competing with Warren, good luck. He's already Everybody already trusts him and he already has a massive uh, head start on you, right? So I think that those are some of the social implications that are like, pretty weird and honestly like one of the goofy parts when we talk about like life extension is like that's already happening like we don't call it life extension we just call it healthcare. but like there have been enormous strides in keeping ourselves alive in the past hundred years and those the benefits of those have largely accrued to people who were already wealthy because they're the ones who can afford expensive new treatments for things like cancer or other other diseases, right? Um, it even impacts what diseases we invest in curing. So like right now, we invest an enormous amount in cancer and we don't invest very much at all in infectious disease because poor people have infectious diseases and right. it's not a great business model for pharma companies. Whereas if you can keep wealthy people alive who have cancer, uh, they're going to pay you a lot of their money in order to remain alive, right? So I think that like one of the interesting things when you try to think about what the future might look like is to – like I always look to history when I write science fiction because I think that's like the, the best the, – that's the only uh, – uh, area where you actually can look at the long view, right? Where you can say like, oh, how did these changes happen over really long timescales? And, and I think that, you know, finding those kinds of analogies, like how is radical life extension similar to cancer treatment or how, how might the uh, business impacts of, of radical life extension be similar to the internet? Right. Or, you know, that, that, that's sort of how I try to think about these things. Yeah. You know, that that particular issue, I feel like our Buckminster Fuller, who said the further forward you want to think, the further back you have to go. Sure. It's, it's paraphrasing. But that that issue of really what we're looking for in a trend analysis is the longest trend line, you know, like the most the most stable and secure guarantee. And so I've been, you know, you take it back even further. You look at, there are patterns in the evolutionary process that, you know, like there's a, there's a period of explosive radiation of diversity, typically. And then it's a, there's a dieback, you know, as, this is, as all of these different possibilities 
compete and one of them either wins or just sort of wins by chance. You know, that there's, it's not always, you know, about the, the most fit, you know, it's, it's also like, you know, which Island didn't get hit by a hurricane that year or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, you look at, uh, the, what looks like the coming speciation event of human species and like this issue of the convergence of like ger- gerontocracy and plutocracy, you know, the, the very old and the very wealthy being essentially a different species of being because of their, their access to healthcare, quote unquote, then uh, it looks a lot like two other things, one very ancient, one very future. I'm you know, curious what you think on this. One is the Cambrian explosion, where like all the different complex body plans appeared at once 500 million years ago. And then it, it whittles itself down and you end up with you know, like 20 phyla of organisms. But there was like all of these different things that weren't arthropods, but are like sort of, you know, segmented th- things with five eyes and all this crazy shit. And then, you know, it kind of shakes out. And, you know, looking back on stuff like that, we don't assign a, like a normative or moral claim to it. Like the way that people talk about the loss of linguistic diversity today or cultural diversity, you know, it's a lot easier to grieve and be distressed about this kind of thing while it's happening than it is, you know, as, as the distant descendants of the winners, quote unquote. <laughs> but then looking forward, the, the one that I think gives, it, gives me chills down my spine isn't even about what happens to us flesh and blood human beings, but touches into what Robin Hanson talks about in the age of M, which is that as we start to emulate human beings in digital environments, that we're going to pick people whose psychologies are well adapted to knowing that they're a simulation, people that aren't going to freak out when they wake up in the matrix, you know, and realize that there's, there's no like flesh and blood body waiting for them to, to wake up back into. And so that, and, and we're going to take this superstar effect is, is going to become exponentially pronounced as we select, you know, the best accountants, the best lawyers, the best of whatever this person's doing. And we, and then even out of that, like we just boil that skill set down to a module that can be used to, you know, to form a piece of a composite digital person. So like what is a human is going to get like profoundly edited through the narrowest evolutionary bottleneck we've ever experienced in this version of, of it. And we end up with countless forks of like a, a handful of people that are the entire basis for humanity in the virtual world. This issue of, in the case of radical life extension and longevity, it's an issue of wealth and access. And in the issue of our sort of digital descendants, it's about who decides what skills are valuable in this world, you know? And, and, and that loosely connects to the issue of, you know, what skills do we find easy or difficult to automate and how the, you know, on a, on a kind of like a less insane time horizon in like the next you know decade or two what kind of people are going to become economically irrelevant and in what order and what do we do with those people yeah um so first of all for your listeners i would if you're interested in this question i'd highly recommend cory doctorow's latest novel which is called walk away and it i mean literally the novel is about the two topics you just described uh essentially like uploading the human mind and the social implications of that um, and, uh, and sort of what that means for society, I guess. Um, and so I, 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 like if you want a, a treatise on that and some really great sort of like storytelling around that from someone far smarter than me, read Walk Away. Uh, <laughs> my, like, Honestly, I'm, there are a lot of things that are interesting there, but there are also a lot of things I am highly skeptical of. So um, one being that we will ever upload human minds or create any kind of general AI. And the reason why I say that is that there is no proof at all that we have ever been able to create a tool, including software, that has any subjective experience. So I'm... 
I am, and I have yet to be convinced by anything I've read, and I've read a lot of the research, and I've talked to a lot of the researchers. Uh, like that, just to me, that that's like a completely different um, thing than what we've been able to achieve. The amazing things we've been able to achieve with machine learning and all of all of the work in software that is going on today. And I think that there is a very uh, misleading public discussion going on around these topics because for a very simple reason, and that is, and I know this is a storyteller, metaphors matter, right? So do you know the etymology of the phrase balls to the wall? <laughs> I assume it's an acceleration term from fighter pilots. Uh, yeah, you're really you're really spot on. So it was like I, I believe in World War II, you had uh, throttles on bombers that were like uh, like the handle of the throttle was sort of circular, and so saying balls to the wall was like saying full throttle, right? But I mean, even full throttle or uh, hit the gas, right? Like those are all 20th century metaphors, right? Like they like think about what it means to hit the gas, right? Like you're in a car and you're pressing the gas pedal and we all understand what it means symbolically because we experience it all the time, right? So we, hum the human mind is very, very poor at distinguishing metaphor from reality, which is what makes art fun, right? Like that's what makes <laughs> novels entertaining. That's why, you know, like we experience them as if they are real. And if you look at biofeedback data and neuroscience data from people playing video games, um, basically their brain thinks there's actually a monster they're shooting, right? Like even though they're sitting on a couch twiddling thumbs, right? Or watching the so, news and perceiving danger. Right immediate danger from something that's happening on the other side of the world yesterday to five people. Right. And that's in many ways, wonderful, right? Like that's allowed us as a species to do things. No other species has done like the entire, like literature is that honestly money is that right. The whole concept of having this abstract symbol that represents shared value. Like that's, that's weird. That's really strange. And it only exists because we can build these really complex shared fictions. However, those fictions can come back and bite you in the ass. And one of the ways they do it is that we take the metaphor too far. So like we, during the industrial revolution, like if you look at Frankenstein, that's like one of the original pieces of science fiction and holds up extremely well today. But like that was if the whole concept of a Frankenstein monster is based on a super sort of like mechanical view of how the world works, right? Like mm. it, it, it takes the extension of the industrial revolution into the imagination of dystopia. And I think that we're doing that right now when we talk about things like uploading our minds and about, uh, uh, you know, creating general AIs and stuff like that. Like, I just think we're taking the computer analogy too far, right? So Agreed. computers are amazing. They're super useful. We can do incredible things with them that no species have ever done like ever it's it's like really really incredible and i think we are actually detracting from how amazing computers are by pretending that giving them human intelligence is even a worthwhile endeavor let alone possible like to me what's <laughs> most interesting about technology is that it allows humans to do more or different things and that it it is that like technology is most useful to the extent that it is inhuman, right? Like that's why computers are useful. Like humans cannot do math that quickly. That's why computers are useful. So anyway, that's sort of my take on it. I actually think that we're like there. There are a lot of armchair discussions that that miss what's important. Now and now, one of the things you said was. What does that mean for people's jobs in the near future? Now, that's totally different, right? Because if you create narrow, we already create narrow AI that automates a ton of human tasks, right? So that is absolutely true. And 
will continue to happen. And honestly, like the more that we can use computers to eliminate eliminate human drudgery, the better, right? So, it, it, but unless you depend on that drudgery that, for subsistence, right? For for any kind of drudgery, it doesn't have to be a subsistence farmer. I mean, it can be like you you gave the example of an accountant. Right. Like there's a lot of accounting that sucks. Right. You're just sort of like immersed in spreadsheets all day, doing re- doing repetitive things in spreadsheets all day that are that are not actually like using your knowledge of the underlying incentive systems and what's important for your client. You're just doing the things, you know, need to be done because the quarter is closing. Right. And so you have to be there all night because and you can't go home to your kid because you have to get this done and you have to get the numbers to the CEO and they're going to report it to the board and then everybody's going to get angry at you, right? Totally. Like, those are things that computers already are doing and should do more of. And that's what we've already done with computers. We've eliminated a lot of shitty jobs. And we're going to continue, like hopefully, we're going to continue to do that. Now, what does that mean for people who have only ever done those jobs? And and now they're not sure what they're going to do. That's a big question. Right. And that's an important question. And it's something that honestly, I'm less worried about than a lot of other people are simply because I don't think anything is fundamentally new about that. Like if you do take the long view and you look to history, you find that like, I mean, it is happening really quickly right now, but like. The, the whole point of technology is that we can accomplish what we want to accomplish more effectively or said another way, we can do less of what sucks, right? <laughs> and when we do less of what sucks, like you can, so you can use technology to do two things. You could either use technology to, oh, okay, so say I'm like a tech billionaire and my company has eliminated all these jobs, etc. Like, uh, could I just, uh, sit on my laurels, allow my algorithms to do their loops, and then like no one's ever going to have a job and the economy falls apart because of it. Like, whereas what about like my neighbor who also is a tech billionaire who's actually going to use the technology itself to hire people to make even better things that no one's invented yet? Like, who do you think is going to win that game, right? And that's what's happened every time before like only two percent of our population in the u.s is in agriculture today right Mm. like what happened to all those jobs like i don't hear many like urban hipsters complaining that they that their only job option was to become a farmer like uh, you know like i so i think that like there, there is uh we we need to have a social system that allows people to have a safety net so that they can find and discover the new areas in which to create value with these new tools. That's something that is a huge problem, and it's a problem right now. It's not a problem in 10 years. But I, I'm not worried at a uh, existential level about future employment or about uh, sort of, I don't know, like conscious computers. Uh, simply because I've never seen anything like that before, and I'm far from convinced by the hypotheses people have posed that don't seem that different than hypotheses sort of mystics have posed throughout history. Totally. Well, I mean, on on the note of conscious AI, I think it it really does boil down to you know Alan Turing's asking whether computers think is like asking whether submarines can swim. Yeah, exactly. You know, so it's it's less about it, like you said earlier about the metaphor, it's like it really is less about whether or not this is rigorous in, in a philosophical sense and more about the hold that it has on our imagination and on the True. way that we interact with our machines on a daily basis. Like I found it really fascinating to learn uh, a couple of years ago about this experiment where they gave a name and a voice to a self-driving car and found that people were far more comfortable allowing the vehicle to take over as driver if the car if they if they gave the car a personality because like we know 
we know that that car is not a person. We know it's not it's not having a qualitative sapient experience, but right. it, it anchors into us at such a, a primitive level in the same way that, you know, a really excellent storytelling is able to uh, project a worldview into us without asserting it as a fact and having to argue against our belief system in order to like contaminate our brain mimetically, you know, that there's, that there's all of these, that in a way it's, I, I see the future as a, as a setting in which the, the metaphorical framing, the experiential design and the implicit rhetoric in our communication is, and, and again, this is not, this is nothing new, you know, like in, in this, this little like microdose of science fiction, it is like all sci-fi, just a projection of what already is, right? But this thing about, especially as the world becomes harder and harder for us as individuals to cognize uh, you know, to to abstract and extract sort of cohesive narratives from this flood of information without linking together into like research groups and and collaborating with expert systems that, you know, we're already at that point where machines for the last few years have been creating mathematical proofs that human beings can't understand. They're, you know, so, so we're going to, I think we're edging out of, what I would, you know, like what we've been calling an age of reason and that we're as, you know, the more technology takes over the human environment, the more we're paradoxically thrust back into a retrieval of these pre-modern ways of relating to our environment that, that, that like shamanism, for example, seems really uh, perfectly it's, it, it fits well for the, the human being in a smart home where you're like talking to the, the spirits living in your walls, sure. you know? And so it, this, this issue of like whether or not that's rationally what's going on is like kind of almost beside the point. But yeah. I agree. I mean, I, I think, I, I mean, I've been, like, I think we need a new mythology for the internet age. Right. And and that's like that's on my mind a lot as I write science fiction stories, right? Like it's not just how do we understand what this science, new scientific development means or how it works or what it might do. It's also just how do we make sense of the human experience in in a world in which the rules and the assumptions. Uh, are changing really quickly, right? And and that is very different in some ways than uh, if you were living as a hunter gatherer or as a, a you know a peasant in the Middle Ages or what have you. Um, I think that's a really interesting question, and, and I try to sort of take like like one of the ways I try to approach it is actually by asking the question of like what hasn't changed at all, right? And like. Uh, actually, Jeff Bezos has a good line on this. That's how he always tries to work on business strategy, right? Everybody is always asking him as the CEO of a major tech company, like, what is the future? You know, what's going to change in the next five years, right? And his perspective is, uh, I don't like, actually, the things that change are the things I can't plan for. So the things I'm going to focus on are the things that I don't think will change. They're actually the most important. And I try to take a similar view when I'm thinking about telling stories set in the future, because, uh, you know, there are a lot of there are obviously so many differences between our lives today and, you know, living in Mesopotamia in 15,000 B.C. But, you know, people still have affairs. <laughs> you know like the affair still, is a cultural constant for sure yeah yeah i mean like people still go through puberty you people still have friendships they still raise children they still um you know are like deal with uh emotional fallout and existential crisis and betrayal and fairness and 
um, all in love and kindness and pettiness and all of those things, right? We still spend two-thirds of our time gossiping about other people. Um, so, you know, so I, I think that, like, that it's, it's important to keep those things in mind, especially when so many of our props, the props of human existence are changing, right? Um, and so uh, that's sort of, like, how I try to... To, to look at it, but, but, you know, to your earlier point of stories sort of having that kernel of truth in them, I mean, I think that's why stories are powerful, right? So, um, you know, that's one of the reasons I write fiction is that you can write, like I also occasionally write essays and like, like nonfiction, but I think that the, the difficulty in, in nonfiction, if you're writing an, an, if you have an idea, and you have two choices. I can write the idea in an essay where I'm explicit about what the idea is, or I can write the idea into a story where the story is, the idea is just implicitly baked in to the story, right? To what happens to the people involved. And uh, the explicit essay has a few benefits. Uh, it's, it's, it's easier to write, Right. You just have to write down what you think. And it also is sometimes easier to share on a really short time horizon. So that's why you'll see a lot of sharing that goes on on social media is sort of like blog posts that are sort of very strongly stated ideas or opinions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the so centrifuge. Like, right. So like those are the benefits of writing it down explicitly. But there are some huge drawbacks. Um one being that it like I, I, a very important one being that basically people forget them quickly, like telling someone to change their mind is not a very effective way of actually changing someone's mind. In fact, the people who share those kinds of articles tend to be people who already agree with the premise. So by definition, you're not convincing them. You're just preaching to the choir. Right. And with a story, the interesting thing is that you, if, if you tell a story well, people identify with the characters in it. They actually have, they are emotionally moved by it. And that is far more long lasting. We remember those things years. Think about like the favorite movie you have since you were a kid, or if you're, a, I don't know, if you like grew up watching Star Wars or something, right? Like that is like a foundational thing in our identities, the stories we love the most in a way that an essay never can be really. Dude, um, I, I actually had that thought uh, about two minutes ago before you mentioned Star Wars. I was like, what if, like, Star Wars just would not work as like a thesis. You know, <laughs> like, you'd just be like, oh, God, put it away. Yeah, but I mean, think about how, like, that's the modern American mythology, right? I mean, literally, that is the mythology of the United States right now. I mean, that, that is probably the most shared cultural motif we have in the U.S., in this very diverse, weird country. And it is has very strong moral lessons and underpinnings and assumptions built into it. And, you know, like, that's, I mean, I always like to say that stories are like Trojan horses for ideas, right? And the proof of it is that I, that that metaphor just worked, right? Like, you know what a Trojan horse is because of the Iliad <laughs> thousands of years ago in a story, right? Like, that is crazy. Like, can you imagine that happening today? Like, you sit down and write a poem, and, like, thousands of years from now in a world neither of us can imagine in the most crazy science fiction ever, people are still referencing it without ever having even read it. Like that is wild. It is absolutely wild. And that's why I find stories so fascinating. So I want to, I want to tie this into, you know, there's a lot of people out there that, that speak eloquently as you do about the value of fiction and of science fiction, but you have a really interesting situation in that you're bringing this into the corporate environment. And I've been, I've been having a lot of conversations lately, but none of them on the show about how 
interesting it is that the nerds won, at least for now. The nerds, the nerds are in charge, and as a matter, you know, because of that, we've seen this shift from an emphasis from the past to the future. Like uh, William Irwin Thompson talked about this in the '90s in his book, The American Replacement of Nature, where he said, you know, com- compared to Europe, America's emphasis is on taking out a loan to build something that's going to change the world rather than, you know, considering it while you maintain tradition, you know? And, and so like now that that's that sort of uh, Silicon Valley philosophy has erupted out and covered the entire world in the 20 years since that book was written, uh, we're, we're living in a space where people like Neil Stevenson are brought in as expert level, you know, C-suite consultants in multi-billion-dollar companies, and it's just like, huh, you know. So there's, it's there's a it, it in line with the growth in corporate mindfulness training, the growth in like the science fiction writer or the science fiction fan becoming a valued corporate consultant within these departments of internal disruption and creative labs and think tanks and stuff is really fascinating to me. The fact that there's, there's an emphasis now on designing for things that don't exist yet. So I'm, I'm curious to hear you talk more about your work within these spaces and what it's like and what the, what the issues that companies are curious about are. And, you know, just like, I'm, I'm fascinated by this stuff. So Please, like, let me soak it. Yeah. Up. So before I even started writing, I worked. I, I worked in a number of different startups. I started my own company, and then I eventually worked at a venture capital firm. And so that was, and so that you know, VCs invest in new startups, right? Um, and so uh, that that was sort of where I was coming from, and. And I mean, honestly, like I think that a lot of what people, if you're, if you're hiring Neil Stevenson or whoever, I think that a lot of the value comes from the value that science fiction offers everyone. So that is that, uh, and, and like you could apply some of this to other like almost all literature, right? There, there are a few things that apply to all literature. So like one, for example, is that uh, it's very well documented that essentially if you read a lot, like if you read a lot of fiction, like that is correlated with having essentially like higher levels of empathy, right? And like that's not particularly surprising because people who might all naturally have higher empathy uh, might seek out sort of fictional experiences of other humans, but also because reading fiction gives you insight into the emotional and intimate personal lives of other people, which sometimes illuminates your own life and the your own human experience and gives you a little bit more uh, of a framework for understanding how others, why others do what they do, not just how they do it or what they do, but why they do what they do. And I think that that the wisdom that, that I have gained as a reader from reading a lot of fiction um, has been enormously helpful to me as a human being, certainly in business. Like, how can you create value for other people if you don't understand them? Right. And what motivates them, but also in the many other areas of my life, just like in my relationships, like in, in my friendships, dealing with my family, like getting better at the skill of putting yourself in another person's shoes is really important. And fiction is basically a great training ground for that. Right. It, it, it can illuminate so much about why we do what we do that we can apply in our own lives. So I think that that's a big part of why uh, anybody might want uh, sort of uh, (laughs) novelists as advisors, essentially, right? Now, on the science fiction front in particular, I think that what makes science fiction as a genre interesting is that is its insights into the present, right? That, That by 
creating a fictional world, it allows you to step out of all of the assumptions you make every day. And I always compare science fiction to foreign travel. So if you've ever stepped off a plane in a foreign country where you didn't speak the language, especially if you spent a long time there, almost immediately, no matter where you're from originally, you will start to notice all of these things that don't make sense. And then you eventually start to realize that like you had a lot of cultural assumptions about why the world worked the way it did or, or, and why people do what they do that just don't make sense here. So it's not actually as interesting to discover what happens in the country you're visiting. What's most interesting is, is returning to your own country and realizing all of the blind spots you had before. Right. And those blind spots are useful. Having assumptions, cultural or otherwise, allows us to be more effective and efficient because you make an assumption so you don't have to think about it. So you can move on to the next thing that's more important. Right. Um, But sometimes we make assumptions that are wrong. And when you make an incorrect assumption, like whether it's in a friendship or in an investment decision, um, you're screwed. (laughs) <laughs> right you simply said right like you you shouldn't have taken that for granted and we all know that feeling of having taken something for granted and i think that that's what science fiction does so well is it allows us without step without getting on a plane to reevaluate our assumptions about the world through fresh eyes and i think that is why people hire neil stevenson because Neil Stevenson is not, uh, he, he's not a, a technologist, right? Like, like if, you, if, you, if you're a software company, you're not going to hire him to write code for you, right? You're, if, you know, uh, Bezos didn't hire him at Blue Origin to, like, actually build rocket equipment, right? Um, the reason why you want someone like that on board is to challenge assumptions that you might have going in and those assumptions could lead you down disastrous and expensive and unprofitable paths right so like having someone there who can speak truth to power and be it and come at it from a really different perspective than your engineers might is actually the value contributed like that's what is useful is to have someone in a meeting who will be like raise your hand and like talk about what we just talked about. Like, wait, like we all think radical life extension is great, but you know, what is, what is that going to mean for like climate policy or whatever? Right. And, and uh, play out those kinds of scenarios. So I think that's where folks get a lot of value out. And, and I think that's why a lot of venture capital investors and a lot of folks in the tech industry love science fiction so much like first of all it's just inspiring like a lot of people get into tech or science because they just grew up with stories that like star trek and star wars and snow crash and you know probably now ready player one right like these kinds of stories become foundational in how we see the world and so that drives our decision our career decisions right like oh wouldn't that be cool i could work on the starship enterprise Right. I'm going to go into aerospace engineering. Like, I think that one of the big mistakes people make is that they think science fiction is useful because it's predictive. And I don't think that's its utility at all, um, particularly from a business perspective. Like, I don't think that I mean, I could be wrong. You'd have to ask him. But I feel like Bezos didn't hire Neil Stevenson to say, like, all right, tell me what's going to happen 20 years from now so we can we can get to work (laughs) on it today. You know, like I I don't or. I could be wrong, but that's certainly not been my interactions with the tech community. Um, it's much more about how do we ask interesting and counterintuitive questions about the present that reveal things that we had never thought of before. Yeah, you know, it, it, listening to you talk about this, it kind of reminds me of the way that hackers were once sort of just regarded as a threat at the margins of computer culture. And then the wise ones really quickly caught on that you can hire a white hat hacker to find the exploits in your system before it's published. 
So we have these like vast teams of people that are doing exactly what you're talking about. They're challenging your assumptions that your security is locked down. And that in a, in a similar way that as science has moved through its institutionalization as sort of the modern social replacement for organized religion, the authority in culture now is with the scientists compared to like 400 years ago when it was with the priests. In that movement, the artist has moved as well. That the, the artist has moved, the novelist, like you're saying, has moved out of the space of just being a, a sort of like retro romantic objection to industrial society and has moved into the place of performing a useful critical function within a scientific process that now belongs within the wheelhouse of, you know, post-industrial society. That's a, that's a mouthful, but like, basically it's like, there's this notion for the last 10 years since getting out of school, I've been like, how the hell am I going to get hired in this world where I'm not willing to toe the party line and I am willing to speak truth to power. And I am, you know, that it's like a, a, a native skill for me to notice an angle on a situation someone else has not. And I think that in the time that I've been an adult, we've witnessed a really profound and pronounced shift in this regard that in the same way that the concerns of World War II brought the messiness of scientific research into the military industrial complex in a new way. And basically, you know, like Fred Turner's from cyberculture to counterculture. He talks a lot about, you know, like the government was willing to tolerate a homosexual like Alan Turing as long as he was working on the Enigma code. That the, the culture of companies like Google comes from an, an admission of the messiness of human nature that it's actually more valuable to allow people to be creative and to, to adapt the, the corporation to the sort of paleolithic environment of group creativity. And it seems like something like that's going on with sci-fi, that there's, there's a, sudden, a sudden awareness, at least from a historical point of view, there's a sudden awareness that having, like uh, my, my cousin worked as a consultant within the BMW group's internal disruption lab. And to even, to even know that there is such a thing as an internal disruption lab, that these people are, <laughs> are trying to beat the world to the punch, you know, to like, to stay, to stay ahead of these waves of change so that they may surf them. I find actually really sort of inspiring that, that there's, there's a new human dimension or at least a new ergonomic human-centered dimension to the design of these large companies and the way, that we, the way that we understand and actualize the kind of changes that we're trying to make in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that, like, honestly, the 20th century was a big oddity for a lot of reasons, but not least of which is sort of the 20th century era sort of, like, corporate structure. Like, that kind of thing never, like... GE, like nothing like GE ever really existed before. I mean, maybe the closest analog would be something like the British East India Company or so, you know, like, like, but really those were like big companies with very specialized, like highly specialized labor is like a weird new thing. And like is not always done well, <laughs> and like and and you know often can go south. And I, I think that that's you're right. Um, you know, like the the new tools we have have changed the way we sometimes structure our organizations. And I also think that there may be a bit of a. I think that one of the odd parts about living at this moment in history, where people have highly specialized jobs, is that we sort of assume. We have a false assumption that people previously did. Like if you look at a lot of, uh, say, like Roman senators, many of them were extremely accomplished writers and also legislators, also legislators and also a bunch of other things. Right. Um, like we have that terminal. We say like a renaissance person is someone who sort of like is excels in multiple but disparate fields. And mm. I think that like. In leadership in the past, there, there were a lot of teams like that. And I think that to a certain extent, the sort of 
hamster wheel of MBA programs in corporate leadership has occasionally sort of like diluted the benefits you get from that. And I do think that some companies are are trying to sort of like, you know, tap that again. I certainly wouldn't say that it's like industry-wide, right? I think that there's mm. a huge variation. I mean, so part of the beauty of the private sector is that like every company does its own thing and often they don't work. <laughs> but uh, but if they do work, you can you can really see some cool stuff happen. So yeah, I, I do think that's really important. And I know that for me personally, I read really widely and I seek out discomfort. I seek out novel experiences that challenge me and that are not always fun. Um, and I try to talk to people from different fields and and learn from them because I've just in my own life found that having a really strange and somewhat random set of life experiences uh, allows me to allows me to have a fresh perspective sometimes on on a new problem, right? Because you might by reading a book about biology, you might realize something about the report you're writing that is actually about economics. Or by spending a month living in Ethiopia, you might realize something about public transit in San Francisco that you had never thought of before, you know, or what have you. So I think that there, there's a lot to that, and there's certainly a lot to that for anyone who aspires to leadership. Mm. Yeah, it's like the uh, Hunter S. Thompson quote, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> so, dude, it's, it's a pleasure. I feel like I'm really only just beginning to, to, to get to know you and, and appreciate what you have going on, and I look forward to, to more of this to come. But as we're wrapping up today's conversation, I'm curious – if you were to leave this on the record as, as sort of your dream or vision for a world we'd all want to live in, what kind of story do you think is worth telling right now at this moment in history? And what, what kind of story or what kind of idea do you hope to pass on to the, uh, you know, whoever's listening to this in a hundred years? You mean, just to make sure I understand the question, you mean like to the extent that I am dissatisfied with the modern world, what well, would I want to pass along? Well, not necessarily so much as out of the spectrum of possibility, uh-huh. which worlds do you see us realistically being able to bridge toward for a, you know, a more humane, just, beautiful delightful experience and and then and then like the part two of that question or you can just sort of weave it in there is this story is a seed entering a time capsule that if all goes according to plan this show will will function as a sort of archive for people who have yet to be born you know so Mm -hmm. it's a message to them as well okay wow that's quite a heavy quite a heavy burden so i'll do my best uh, So honestly, I think that the most important things about the world and about what it means to be human are very obvious and very old. And I think that it's it's especially important to remember that when we feel like we're in the midst of a whirlwind of change that we don't understand. And that the world that we want to build and the lives that we want to lead, be it today as we're speaking in 2017 or 2117, when hopefully this podcast has a massive audience and we are currently heard <laughs> by billions, is, is simply that we need to be kind to each other. Like we need, you know, we need to, to help, to help our friends out, it, even more important to, to help out strangers in need, right? To, to pay things forward instead of trying to think about uh, the benefits 
that accrued to us um, to, to make sacrifices, meaningful, painful sacrifices, financial, emotional, otherwise, to, to help each other out, right? To, whether that means like, you know, smile when you pay your taxes instead of frowning about it, right? Like it's not, it's not people stealing your money from you. It's you investing in your own society, right? Uh, like I think that building a better world is really just a thousand small acts of kindness, right? And, and I think that that's what's important to remember. I think that was important to remember during the Roman Empire, I think it's important to remember today. I think it'll be important to remember a thousand years from now, regardless of what changes in the meantime. And if you bring that, I mean, that perspective is a choice, right? Like we don't get to choose the world we're born into. We don't get to choose the parents we were born to. We don't get to choose all the constraints that biology and society place on us. But we do get to choose how we react to that and how we choose to treat other people, whether they are being nice to us or being mean to us, right? And and I think that fundamentally that, like approaching the world from a, a place of generosity and openness and assuming the best in others, even in the worst of circumstances, is the only thing that really matters. That's an awesome place to put this down. <laughs> Dude, thanks so much for joining me today to talk. And, and I, I hope that whatever world we're inhabiting, it's one that lets us talk more frequently. Sounds great. I agree. <laughs> Take care, man. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod Network, an amazing collection of podcasts along with Third Eye Drops, Synchronicity Podcast, It's All Happening, The Astral Hustle. Be sure to go to mindpodnetwork.com and check it out. And if you'd like to support the show, patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thanks again.